Today on the Courier Daily, what's the future of live events? For me to watch football, I'd much rather be at the match. I want to be at the stadium. But if I can't be at the stadium, then I want to be in a pub with my friends watching the game. And if I can't do that, then I'd, I'll watch it on TV. But at every point, I'm paying for it. So why can't that be the same for music and culture? Then, how did a knitwear company decide to make hand sanitizer? The World Health Organization actually publishes on their website how to make effective hand sanitizer. So we took that as the starting point. But I mean, there's been so many challenges. We had, we had to source ethanol, which is a worldwide shortage of because that is the main ingredient in hand sanitizer. But thankfully, we were quite early, so we managed to get quite a decent supply of ethanol. And a bit later on, we're future gazing with the venture capitalist. There's going to be a set of founders that come out of this and say, you know what, I don't really want to be, you know, dependent on raising a series C, D and E. Um, maybe I want to try to build a business that's profitable and then opportunistically raise capital to put fuel on the fire instead of doing it just to survive. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. It's the 23rd of April and this is The Courier Daily. Every day we're checking in with small business owners all over the world to find out how they're adapting and growing. And first up, given that events are pretty much totally on hold for the foreseeable future, well, what's a startup that's focused on live events to do? Dice is a mobile app that connects users with tickets for live gigs, festivals, and parties. It's been around since 2014 and has since expanded from London to around the world. Phil Hutchian is the co-founder, and he's on the line now from London. And Phil, I guess I want to know, first of all, what's the latest with the company? What's going on with Dice? So, yeah, our entire mission is to get people out, which is the opposite of what we need to be doing now. We have to stay in. And so, yeah, we had to change everything. I think that you might have seen last week we launched Dice TV, which is something that I didn't imagine us doing ever. I'm actually incredibly skeptical of remote shows but just how quickly this has come aboard, but also like how quickly we've had to look at uh, how we view and interact with culture is something that is just a natural kind of step for us. So for those who don't know the ins and outs of the DICE business model, how do you guys actually make money in normal times when we're not in wartime conditions? What's the DICE business model? So for DICE is um, discovery and buying tickets to events. So our, our thing was to, we started off in London, then we went into Paris and Spain and the US and Italy and around the world and getting people to go out more by recommending better events to them. And we take a cut of uh, the price of the ticket. Although the ticket price is always what you see up front is what you pay at the end. So has your revenue gone down to like zero then? Yeah, I mean, it's gone from... We were growing incredibly fast in January and February. We looked at it, one in three Londoners between 20 and 35 had used dice to middle of March, like almost down to sort of five, 10% of that level. How are you guys sustaining the business then during this time? I think like most people start seeing this around February. And I listened to a couple of the other interviews that you did. I, I love suitcase as well. So I was kind of curious, like uh, what they were doing this. It's parallel. Everyone had, almost had an identical thing. And I don't think that the, I mean, this is like universal grief. It's also like a universal moment. Everyone is going through the same thing. It's not like you can kind of bounce things off. Yeah. I mean, every business, small or large, is going through this shared collective tragedy right now. It's totally crazy. 
Exactly. The whole world is going through uh, the same thing. So like most people, we saw this and uh, I saw this and uh, I was coming back from New York at the start of February and I was kind of feeling a bit nervous about that. By the middle of February, we at all hands start talking about, you know, uh, washing hands and all that kind of stuff, but still felt like otherworldly. And then like, just because it is exponential, it's just that it wasn't that we were getting daily updates. It wasn't that we get getting hourly updates. It's almost like minute updates. And I'd be sending emails that literally dated as we sent them. So we had to come up with a, a new plan. So I got the my direct reports together and over a weekend, we're like, let's put together a new plan of how we kind of survive this and then sort of thrive uh, the other side uh, called board meeting just to secure our long-term runway because we're backed by investors and they supported it. We had to make cuts, which were incredibly hard for us because, you know, we love everyone who is, is working at DICE. Yeah, we put that plan in really quickly at the start of March and took some time to heal from that. And then like, cool, let's start building. And primarily DICE is software, we're product. We build stuff that connects like fans to experiences. And we had a thesis that, you know, that would take like a, you know, a couple of years until, you know, things start coming out as we're expanding around the world. That's just now, we got to do this in three months. Like we got to build this faster. Like how do we build an industry that is sustainable? I think that what COVID-19 has shown across all business is just how fragile everything is and just being a little bit smarter and a little bit more creative in terms of how we do that in the future. Are you guys carefully tracking signs from the market about when physical events and live gigs might actually start up again? I mean, you must have some pretty good data or intelligence on that, right? I sent a note a couple of weeks ago about the difference between optimism and being naive. And I think the only thing that we can do right now is take things day by day. The guesses that come out, it's almost like people sort of get into this hope that something might happen like sooner than they might actually think. But then on the flip side, you have this sort of really negative approach is that, hey, this is not going to get back to normal until... 2030 and you're like okay so all you can do is just take things day by day and kind of like build it up and just think about those things with a a rough idea of what's happening in the future because it could be anything there's a number of factors that kind of happen could anything between you know august at the most optimistic march which seems to be next year it seems to be something that people are kind of sort of geared towards but what i do know is that the last events that will be mass populated is probably going to be sporting events any large-scale events that could attract you know, people who are most vulnerable, probably the last ones that will open. And then from that, kind of just cascading down to the small venues, which is why for us is doing the remote events and, and, and what Dice TV is, is ticketing remote events is something that is long-term. It's something where we imagine a world where people be buying a live ticket and a remote ticket. An act that could be huge might be playing in a much smaller room because of the restrictions. The timetable of that, we don't know. I mean, each day it's kind of like we get some more information. And I guess that's, I've noticed myself is that I'm reading the news less. I'm trying to just do twice a day check-ins on things as to making sure like, you know, there's nothing too disastrous. But I feel like this is all new territory for everyone in the world. What's also interesting is that how each country is uh, dealing with it. I had a call yesterday with a guy in in India and they're going to open much sooner than what we'd be doing in Europe. And then you're talking to someone, I had a call with someone in the US who's thinking the most pessimistic view. And it's kind of, it's interesting geographically and, and culturally, like how people are sort of thinking about this as well. For the live streaming events you were just talking about, Dice TV, I mean, 
six months ago, someone might have had a physical event, and then you could catch the streaming version for free. You just tune in to like a live stream. Do you think things will change now in a way that streaming events you'll always have to pay for? You know, so fewer free live streams. Yeah, the whole thing has been disrupted. I would say that、um, the appetite for live stream events was tiny. We didn't even care about it; like we just ignored it. Our job is to bring people together, and actually seeing that、uh, you're bringing people together, you know, watching another human perform, whether it's music, comedy, or whatever, is something that kind of directly addresses some of like society's like issues around anxiety or、uh, mental health. Because it's like cool; it's sort of you're part of something again. So the idea of、uh, remote shows was alien to us. But now it's obviously it has changed. I mean, we're doing this via a Zoom right now. A month ago, we wouldn't have attempted to do this unless we were in the same room. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done a video interview in my almost decade of doing podcasts until the crisis hit. So you know, I would do the odd phone interview, but the vast majority of interviews were always done in person. And and actually, I was talking to he's in his seventies and he manages like really big pop acts, and he's always jumping on the plane. He's going to Los Angeles for a couple of meetings. And he's loving like <laughs> the fact that he does this. He's like, "Why haven't we been doing this?" Like, because the technology has always been there, but doesn't haven't really been thinking about it. And it's probably the same with live streaming. I think that the artists are understanding that they do have a direct connection with an audience. They can go online. Their production costs are significantly less. When we looked at it, the way that I, mean, I love football. For me to, to watch football, I'd much rather be at the match. I want to be at the stadium. But if I can't be at the stadium, then I want to be. In a pub with my friends watching the game, and if I can't do that, then、I'd, I'll watch it on TV. But at every point, I'm paying for it. So why can't that be the same for music and culture? Like if it's you know, as long as it's done right, and I think that's the thing that will be tuned this year is that the performance itself needs to be really great. What I've seen in terms of the streams is a huge variance of quality. I do think that five minute, ten minute thing on Instagram is kind of compelling, but there's things that are missing from that dynamic. What's interesting is when someone is, you almost feel like they're in the room with them and communicating with fans who also really love that artist. Things that we've been looking at is actually making live streams smaller, because yeah, you know, why are we trying to get a hundred thousand people to watch this thing? Let's just get forty of like really passionate fans together with the artist, and they can kind of like chat to each other and have that connection、uh, with the artist. Because that's the if you think about the shows that you remember for the, your whole life, it's not you standing at the back of Wembley Stadium. It's when you're like right there with the the artist in front of you. So,、um, and I think they're also the ones that can be monetized for the artist better because. You know, the artists are professionals, and we should encourage them to do high-quality, really engaging remote shows. And in return, fans love that artist and want to support them, and just create that that cycle there. Do you think there'll be more investment in areas like VR or AR performances? You know, where you're you feel like you're in a crowd of people watching your favorite band. So I'm still skeptical on that. I feel like the community aspect is,、uh, and the interaction with the live stream is still. Critical, and I know you can kind of do that, but if you've got a, a headset on, maybe it's a it's a little harder to do it. I tried、um, a couple of AR things last week. You know, having my phone up, we already have a ton of data because we already have you know a lot of people using Dice TV. And what's interesting is people having the second screen. 
people get fatigued looking at their mobile phone for a period of time and they just want it on their laptop or their TV and kind of doing something else. So, yeah. And finally, Phil, you know, there are thousands upon thousands of small, independent, physical venues out there. How are those guys coping and adapting right now? I mean, I imagine it's quite hard to find a creative way of using a physical space right now. They're essentially empty vessels that are bleeding money, right? Yeah, which is why Dice TV is something that we do now, which which we can help them quickly. So one of the, the initiatives is a, a big artist who might have played at that small venue at the beginning of their career, do a live stream to support those small venues. Everyone wins from that. But long term, we're building new software to really help those venues thrive and particularly getting access to talent, reducing their marketing costs bringing in ideas like subscription. Our initiative is that if there was a COVID-21, that venues and artists would shrug and go, it's okay, I've got this. I've still got a revenue stream coming through. I can get through this. Next up, a quick pivot that caught our eye. If you're a Keen Courier subscriber, you might've caught our feature on Country of Origin a while back. Founders Ben Taylor and Alice Sliptrot make really gorgeous knitwear. Well, with tools down at their factory due to the crisis, the team have pivoted to making, of all things, hand sanitizer, setting up a new social enterprise in just under two weeks. The brand's called, appropriately enough, Hand. They're based at an industrial space in South London. They're paying a living wage to workers in the community. They're donating product to organizations in need, and they're returning a portion of the profits as well. I guess, first of all, Ben, I mean, you guys make clothes, knitwear. How did you decide to make this quick pivot? We wanted to kind of find a way of supporting the community. Obviously, our knitwear factory kind of closed during quarantine and we were kind of looking for a way of helping out. There is two big issues. I mean, obviously, the standard issue is that there is a need for hand sanitizer and there's a worldwide shortage of it. We could manufacture that quite easily, so we wanted to do that. But we actually wanted to kind of create a whole new brand in order to create a social enterprise to create jobs for people and not make it a kind of... A charity project that would that would be very short term, but actually a longer term project that would be a, a brand that could could employ people in the in the local community that have lost their jobs through the kind of financial uh, crisis that's going on. So walk me through how you did this. I mean, you guys run a really high quality knitwear company, and now you're making hand sanitizer. How does one go about quickly making hand sanitizer? Where do you make it? Yeah, it's quite a pivot. For the past four weeks that we've been working on this we've kind of just been learning learning on the job really and we've had a ton of people help us out and experts on how to make it but who the world health organization actually publishes on their website how to make effective hand sanitizer so we took that as the starting point but i mean there's been so many challenges we had we had to source ethanol which is a worldwide shortage of because that is the main ingredient in hand sanitizer but thankfully we were quite early so we managed to get quite a decent supply of ethanol and copeland park which is the busy building in peckham they gave us a large industrial unit to manufacture everything in for free which is very kind of them that's kind of where we're at really our other partners that we have worked with is our branding agency a design studio called aya and they've donated all their kind of work and branding for free it's an amazing job in kind of creating a full brand in two weeks basically which is really impressive yeah and as you said it's a social enterprise so you know, you're providing obviously jobs to people to make this stuff and you're also returning some of the profits to key workers and supplying care homes. Yes. The initial idea was just to do this as a charity project, but we actually saw a way of 
supplying care homes and supplying food banks for free by selling this to the public and then returning all the profits in order to supply the more vulnerable in, in society. But also what that does is then it, we're able to create living wage jobs for people in our local community. And it is Peckham, which is already a deprived area and will likely see the brunt of whatever financial fallout we're, we're yet to see. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, once you go back to making beautiful knitwear, are you going to carry on this project? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see them as two separate entities. So the knitwear, we still have our factory in the Midlands. That's closed because, um, I mean, the initial idea was that we were going to make it up in the Midlands. But unfortunately, a lot of our guys that work there are over 60 um, and we just didn't kind of want to risk their risk their health. The hand has kind of now grown into what we see as a really viable brand and a, a viable separate entity that we hope to kind of work on for years ahead to support the local community and create a genuinely interesting and, and dynamic brand that supports the community and works for the community. And finally today, we're a few weeks into the crisis and tons of investors are playing the waiting game. I'm on the line now with Paul Murphy, who's a general partner at the venture capital firm North Zone. And I want to know basically, Paul, when the wallets and purses will open up again and when the checks will start to be written. As it relates to startups, there's definitely, obviously, first order of businesses, you have to make sure that you survive this period. You know, what we've been doing with our portfolio and a lot of the founders that I know that, that we haven't invested in is they've been trying to make sure that they shore up their survival. So if they were planning on raising money in the next six months, let's start those conversations now, make sure that we're covered. Let's also be a bit more conservative on burn just in case things last a bit longer than everyone plans. There's a minimum threshold that you need to have to survive. Beyond that, I mean, of course, there's some areas where more capital gives you a strategic advantage. But I think for most software sort of startups where you're looking at very high gross margin, most of the burn is in people, engineering costs, things like that. I don't think capital will necessarily be the competitive advantage for them. You were a founder and a CEO before you became a VC. If you were running a company right now, what would be your game plan, your strategy for survival? I think the founders that are going to survive are the ones that had really strong financial discipline pre-pandemic. There was absolutely a phase that we were getting into at the end of 2019, where um, founders were raising a lot of capital at very high valuations. They were burning a lot of capital, and there was this perception that it's always going to come. And the pendulum swung very far in the direction of the founders. Now, I, I love that. I'm all for founders having as much control over VCs as possible. I think that's actually a good dynamic. But I think there are a subset of founders where they got to their head and they kind of perceived that it was always going to be good times and they hadn't maybe lived or, or been in business when 2008 came or 2000 came. Do you think venture capitalists will become more important than ever in keeping startups afloat, giving them runway to survive? Or do you think actually the opposite might be true? Founders have become more self-sufficient and scrappy and bootstrappy, and they avoid taking on big amounts of cash. Like you said, maybe big amounts of cash made founders a bit sloppy and careless with where they spent the money. I do think that there's a set of, again, I'm like talking about a subset of founders, not all of them, but there are a set where they kind of viewed... It's like the end game was a big splashy financing round and a TechCrunch article. And like that, you realize if you've done it before that the, the dopamine you get from that lasts about 10 minutes. And then you're sat with the burden of all this capital, you know, really high investor expectations. 
you might have taken a set of exits off the table, which could have made you incredibly wealthy, uh, but are no longer appealing to your, your new investors. And then on top of that, right now, any founder that needs to raise capital right now is not going to raise on the best terms. So they're going to see the effect of dilution and potentially some really kind of punitive terms when they're dependent on constantly raising capital. I think that, you know, for some will die off. I think some will sort of learn a hard lesson right now. I've been there before. I, I had a startup in a previous recession and, you know, we hit really hard times and I learned a really valuable lesson. So, uh, you know, founders will, will learn that lesson. And I think you're right that there's going to be a set of founders that come out of this and say, you know what, I don't really want to be, you know, dependent on raising a series C, D and E. Um, maybe I want to try to build a business that's profitable and then opportunistically raise capital to put fuel on the fire instead of doing it just to survive. Yeah, because like you mentioned before, a lot of these companies, especially the D2C companies who spend insane amounts of money on marketing and, you know, subway ads and the cost per acquisition is like gargantuan, those guys are now completely screwed, right? Yeah, I th- well, it's interesting because I think we we got a little bit cool on that, on that space generally. Uh, one of my partners, Jessica, was a co-founder of HelloFresh. And so... She's got an incredible wealth of experience and knowledge in that space. And I've also made some investments in the space. And we both sort of saw a number of the D2C companies, uh, you know, in the past 24 months and said, you know, I'm not sure there's really anything there. It's just selling something at a slight loss today with the hopes that margins will improve in the future. And that's not, doesn't feel like a great strategy. So we looked for things that had, you know, really high contribution margin where you could, you could see, you know, software like gross margins as they started to scale, not having to believe that they're going to have some massive supply chain efficiency. That said, I think what's happening now is you're actually seeing two things happen in favor of many DTC companies. One is no one's leaving their house, so they're all buying stuff online. So a lot of products are actually sold out if they're kind of more necessity items that you might have gotten in a grocery store. The other is a lot of the big advertisers have pulled off and cooled down on their ad spend so you're seeing a suppression across the board in all the ad auctions and the big marketplaces like you know Facebook and, and Google. So I suspect many of these DTC companies are seeing their CAC go down at a time when people are buying more. So there may actually be a, a sort of short-term surge for some of these companies. And then we'll just see how they kind of survive and, and do as things come back to normal and the big advertisers come back online. What else do you see on the horizon that might be counterintuitive that if I'm a, an entrepreneur right now going through the shit, as it were, that might be helpful to me to survive? All startups at some point hit a bump in the road. Um, often it's kind of related to their specific business. You see it sometimes where it's just everything is going so well and then something happens. They could have an HR issue. They could have a product issue. One of the big tech giants could go after their market. And in those moments... I feel like that's where the the kind of true culture of that company starts to become clear and the how effective the leaders and the founders are in the business and then also how differentiated the underlying company is. In this case, it's happening to everyone at the same time, so it's a little bit of a weird situation, but when you step back, it's actually not that different. There's all you should always expect to hit these bumps in the road. It's just rare that it happens to everyone at the same time. So I think the best thing you can do as a founder is try to try to be optimistic, try to see, you know, this as an opportunity to regroup, to reassess, you know, if there's a 
if you feel like you're in a heavily competitive dynamic, you know that all of your other competitors are also regrouping now. So you can kind of take a deep breath, think about what you really need, maybe pull back on some of those investment decisions that you kind of weren't that certain on and double down on the ones that you you always had confidence in. But I think bottom line is just stay the course. Like we, we will get through this. The reality is for Northstone, we've been investing for almost 25 years and our biggest wins, most successful companies have always come either at a point when we invested in a massive downturn or they were growing during the downturn. So Spotify, we invested just before the kind of Lehman collapse and they grew all the way through as tech continued to decline for the following two to three years. So I would say try not to be too shaken by it, although I know it's you know uncomfortable for all of us. And that's it for today. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts. And as ever, sign up to our newsletter, Courier Weekly, for more stories of pivoting, adapting, and growing. Head to couriermedia.co slash sign up. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. Courier Daily is back again tomorrow.